Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unique stressors of this very strange yet very potent time. My name is Brett. I'm going to be your host on this journey. And joining us on the show today is the one and only Michael Rempel. He is first and foremost a musician who helped start the widely popular electronic jam band Lotus. He has since gone on to become a certified mindfulness meditation instructor through the Unified Mindfulness System, started by Shinzen Young. In this conversation, we talk about his 20 years touring with Lotus, leading up to his departure, all while he was stewarding a consistent spiritual practice. We then go on to explore the UM system that has captured his attention, and really dive into what makes it so effective and unique. At the end of the episode, he was kind enough to share a guided practice with us that really hammers the themes of this conversation home. So if you like what you hear today and want to keep in touch with Michael's work, head on over to michaelremple.com and stay updated on all of his coaching and upcoming music releases. Before we get started, I also want to offer a huge thank you to Michael for helping create the new theme song that we've been using. I really think he did an excellent job capturing the energy of the show and really did not need that much prompting. I could not be more happy with how it turned out and found the entire process to be filled with ease, and it was so fun to interact with him in this way, and just feeling his enthusiasm for the project was just such a treat, uh, which is kind of hard to come by in um, a creative process like this where you're trusting somebody else with the direction of your uh, you know, theme and branding. So I really just wanted to say that that was uh, an incredible experience, and he's also open to work on other people's commissions. So if you are a fellow podcaster, if you have something that you need some audio work done, uh, again, head on over to michaelremple.com and shoot him an email. He'll respond pretty quickly. And yeah, it was affordable, and it was just a really good experience, and it had me really excited about the future of the show. So you can't really there's no price on that, right? Like that's just such a, an important thing. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, everybody. Meditation, spirituality, music, festivals, celebration, and uh, connectivity, really. So whatever you need to do, if it's stretching, sitting back, drinking some tea, just open your heart for today's guest, Michael Rempel. Michael, we're live. Uh, I just want to start by saying hi and welcome to the show. Uh, it's really great to have you on, man. How are you doing today? I am doing well in this moment. Feeling feeling good. Good. Glad yeah. to hear it. So I think most people who are tuning in um, probably know you from your life history of working with the band Lotus starting the band Lotus. Uh, for the folks who've never heard of you before, it's a pretty dang popular band in the jam band scene. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I came to find you as well. So I've known about you for um, since 2011. So yeah, 12 years at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit of background about me, you know, I've seen you play with them well over 20 times. Uh, and when you became kind of a distinct entity in the band to me was actually back in 2012. It was after attending the Rootwire Music Festival. There was a recap video 
that was released and they had interviewed you. And I remember watching that because I was just so transformed by that experience and just really recognizing you as kind of somebody who felt kindred. Like, yeah, he had Mm. a similar experience and the way you talked about it was very intentional. Um, And since then, you know, you've gone on and you have actually left Lotus and started to teach mindfulness meditation. And I've seen you come up in my feed a few times on social media. And I'm just like, you know what? I I bet we'd have a chat or two. So uh, I guess just kind of going back, you know, you've been a part of this pretty um, influential band in, in a scene. And you've also had this spiritual practice running parallel to that. Uh, so, you know, I'm just kind of curious to hear a little bit about your story of how you found your way with a foot in both of these worlds. Great. Feels like such a big question. It is, yeah. Um, how far back do I go? Um, the Big Bang. We can do that. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be, yeah, where things started. Um, how far would you like back would you like me to go? Any. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, pertinent to the conversation, just like spirituality and then, you know, how that has kind of merged with your experience Mm -hmm. with Lotus Mm -hmm. and I guess what that was like from a spiritual lens. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, So, yeah, coming out of, so Lotus started, Luke Miller and I started the band with some, some other guys at Goshen College in northern Indiana in the fall of 1998. And, um... I mean, we could start with the band name, you know, that was like a, uh, an interest. Lotus was a, you know, a symbol that I'd read about in some Eastern philosophical traditions like Buddhism and which was a new thing for me at that time. I, you know, coming out of high school, I was 18 and I remember reading a Jack Kerouac book, Dharma Bums. And that was like my first exposure to Buddhism and the idea of meditation and it just something about it, something about the way he was writing about it was uh, really interesting to me and different from the spiritual tradition I had grown up with, which was Christianity. And uh, while that was a beautiful tradition and way to grow up and there was just a lot of uh, beauty and integrity in the, the way I was raised within the Christian tradition, uh there was i was curious i was still curious about something more and different and a different way to view um spirituality or expand it beyond what i had known through that particular lens of christianity so yeah getting little tastes of uh, meditation and what the practice could point to in terms of i don't know what we could call it a psychological freedom or spiritual freedom, um, deep transformation, uh, liberation, you know, things like that, concepts like that were really interesting to me at that time. And soon after that, I had uh, discovered the teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, and he was just so influential for me. And I read his books, you know, over many years. And so that interest in you know meditative traditions and eastern spirituality i guess we could call it um was just parallel with my interest in music i had a passion for 
for bands like Fish. I was like a diehard Fish fan at that time. And um, it just made sense to me to, to um, I don't know, do my best to um, maintain both interests and um, communicate something of what I was getting from these teachers you know, as a musician. I think it was mostly like indirect, it wasn't explicit, but there was something about um, bringing a certain quality of presence, at least some intention to bring a quality of presence and curiosity and openness, ease, fluidity, flow like, into my way of being as a musician. And so that was like a thread that was important to me throughout my career. Lotus. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting with that scene in particular because I feel like it's just such a ripe and like fertile ground for a lot of spiritual exploration. And I feel, at least from my experience, um, there's just a lot of exposure to a lot of different belief systems, a lot of different imagery that a lot of people don't have access to until they go to like maybe a Lotus show or I know the Grateful Dead had, there's an energy about that that is really transformative in itself. And that's really what drew me to it. What do you think it is about, I mean, jam bands in particular have just like a spiritual quality to them. And I don't know mm. why, like, I don't know, mm. being on the stage mm. and engaged with the music making process. What do you think it is about that genre? And then also electronic music to a degree. What about that is so conducive? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, and I imagine there's a lot of layers to it, but I, I agree. Like, it seems that this particular music scene, maybe more than others, I don't know if that's actually true, but it seems to me like it might, more than other musical genres or scenes, like, point to an experience of transcendence, maybe. Um, I think it may be in large part because there's such a strong emphasis on improvisation and spontaneity. So there's this emergent quality of music that's just happening. You know, there, there's an explicit intention from the musicians to improvise. And if it's true improvisation, nobody actually knows what's about to happen. And then, but everybody's in on it. So the audience also knows that they're even if they've seen the band a dozen times before or 50 times before, they're probably going to hear something new because they're improvising. And then, yeah, that relationship, it's, there's a relationship between the energy of the music and then how that impacts the listener and, and even in their body. So there's a lot of dancing in, in these contexts and that kind of, there's this uh, loop, a feedback loop of flow that uh, lasts for however long the show is going on. Um, another thing I might, another aspect that occurs to me is that there tends to be a lot of like psychedelic medicines, things like that. And, you know, <laughs> we could talk about if the word medicine is actually applicable in that context <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but uh i think 
those types of experiences, if, if someone's in a, a non-ordinary state with a psychedelic, that too points to something beyond the ordinary. And I think that there's some kind of recognition that can happen in that space where one's nature is intuited in some way. So there's a, a few pieces in response to what you asked. Yeah. And I think most people who have interacted in these spaces would probably immediately be familiar with these elements that you're talking about. There is a level of exchange that I've found as a participant, um, as an attendee, that it really does feel like you are a part of the process as it's unfolding, like the line between performer and uh, attendee is a lot more blurred in these spaces than if somebody goes up, plays a very structured song that they wrote maybe 10 years ago. Like There's something about the creation that I found to be really impactful. Um, I know for me, though, and this is, I, I'm maybe a little bit of a stick in the mud, I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon, uh, I definitely hit a point interacting with these spaces and using them as practices to experience that where I felt like a deep need to ground those experiences. <clears throat> and it's something that I've kind of recognized in my peers of people who have kind of gone off that path and developed other traditional practice, I, I guess, regiments. Um, and I just wonder, you know, like how can we best – I guess, use these opportunities, these experiences as a means to maybe create something deeper, something that is more than just buying a ticket to a show, going, having your experience, coming home, back into your mundane life, uh, and then waiting for the next show. You know, like, is there a way that we can kind of take that energy and actually infuse our life with it? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful question, and I resonate with that movement or that desire or that impulse to channel what's being experienced in a, say, a live music context in a constructive and grounded way into, like, meaningful life experience, whether we call that inspiration or... I think it's an important question, um, and I think maybe not everybody out there who's going to shows like actually has that same impulse. Maybe it's just like entertainment, and it's a it's just a break from <laughs> the norm, the the day to day um, grind, <laughs> if you will. If it's a grind for some people, it might just be like, oh, this is just a temporary refuge. It's a, it's an escape for a weekend, and, and that might be how some people relate to it. But I would, um, I think I'm imagining that that way of relating to it maybe um, won't last too long. I don't know. But uh, so the question of like how it was it was the question like how can we you channel these experiences or use these experiences and meaningful ways into daily life, something like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Um, I just, I imagine that 
the answer to that question just is so unique to each person, you know, I think, um, I would encourage a, you know, a music fan <laughs> who's in the scene that we're talking about, who, if there's an intuition to, to do something more with what is being experienced in these music contexts, um, to just like, yeah, like notice their curiosity, like what, what are you drawn towards? What is so interesting about the experience of live music for you? Is it a, is it a way of like being in your body? Is it, is it like, oh my God, I notice like when I'm at these shows, I'm like dancing and I'm, I'm like way more embodied than I maybe normally am. And that feels really good, potentially, I'm imagining. So that could be a thing. It's like, oh, I'm going to start practicing more embodiment um, outside of, you know, these live music contexts, maybe going to an ecstatic dance or yoga, or there's so many different kinds of embodiment practices. Um, but it could also just look like, say, if you, if you see a particularly powerful show, you're really impacted by a particular experience at a particular show. It's like, it could look as simple as like getting the recording to that show and putting it in your ears on the way to work. <laughs> and using that as a mm, a way to like elevate your baseline of good feels in the body, the kind of energy that you get to, to enjoy, absorb, and see how and make it like almost like an experiment. Like I'm gonna see how to what degree can I channel this like lovely feel good positivity in my body from this music and like channel it into my relationships and or my work or whatever it is so there's two examples that come i love up. both of those yeah yeah it's interesting with this mode of inquiry where we are able to like pause and kind of reflect on like well like what am i enjoying about this kind of experience like what's drawing me this why am i looking forward so much to these particular spaces and i think that mode of inquiry uh, it, it lends itself really well to really the big subject of what we're going to be talking about today. But it's one that I really encourage a lot of people throughout my life to just pause and really break down an experience into its constituent parts. You know, there, there's so many moment-to-moment -moment unfoldings when you're at a festival or at a show. Um, some of them are good, some of them are bad and uncomfortable. And to be able to actually break that down and really distill what your relationship is to each of these different elements because it's not just one thing mm -hmm. and i think it's very easy to homogenize the idea of a festival and then you have an associated emotional response but you know within that there are so many and we could just slow down and create a little bit of space to just see who are we like what is the animating force in these environments that's getting me excited that's slowing me down you know i have been you, sometimes you get really frustrated you know, these can be really beautiful spaces that are just highly stimulating uh, to really just come to know yourself so much more kind of loudly. You're out of the realm of your day-to-day -day life. You're not in your usual momentum. So it's just a very raw, visceral, human kind of thing. And, you know, using these spaces as an opportunity to just connect more deeply with the energies of life and yourself and, you know, your likes, your dislikes 
you know, I think a lot of youth are really drawn to these spaces because of that. It's so foreign. It's so alien <clears throat> to what they're normally used to. And it really offers them insight because it's not all just one good thing, you know, like there's mm-hmm. so many emotions that happen. There's so many distinct opportunities that if we develop a sense of discrimination can really help us in my view it equip us with a sense of clarity around the rest of our lives as well i like that yeah i feel like you're you're kind of just pointing to like the essence of mindfulness practice in a way using the festival experience as a way to like pay attention to experience itself like what happens when when i'm here what's arising and like being really curious about the ebb and flow, the arisings and passings, the the pleasant and the unpleasant. Um, yeah, that's one thing I hear in what you said, and I'm you know we're gonna get into some more granular details about mindfulness. But the other thing that came up for me as I was listening to you was uh, around belonging. Mm. I think that's another big piece for a lot of especially young people um coming into this kind of music scene is like there's just a this innate human need to feel a sense of belonging with with a community and uh, i think that this scene can give people a sense of that to some degree i think that's what people are often at least looking for and when they find a band that they love or, or uh, yeah, particular, you know, like different bands have different followings and it's like, oh, you, you, you share this love for this music and you meet friends and community. And um, I think that's another thing that people are kind of longing for is a sense of like really deep belonging. Um, and I think that at least I imagine that that in some ways if it, it, it can it, the likelihood of finding that or really experiencing that sense of belonging it might be limited depending on how much intention you actually bring to that yeah 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 I think it's um one of those things that it really is one of the big motivators for a lot of people and that's why people will start dressing as like fitting into the scene and then they'll start maybe changing some of their behavior patterns it's a very human thing and that's something that i recognize and why i have such a passion for expanding out because i feel like the most radical thing is to take that sense of belonging and then like how can i best maintain a relationship with that feeling even when i'm not plugged into like a core scene like how can i just feel a sense of belonging all the time even if i'm just like at work if i work retail like how can i feel connected to all of humanity at all times you know it's Mm -hmm. a very i guess anti-consumerist kind of thing where it's just like i don't need to purchase anything i don't need to be a part of anything i just am and that is enough totally yeah 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 so it's beautiful so you know that kind of does I think dovetail really into a a practice that we're going to be talking about for much of this conversation, which I think really lends itself well to cultivating that sense of belonging. Uh, And I think it ties up, I mean, I don't know if there's there's like a direct correlation, but, and I don't want to speak for your experience, but you know, you ended up leaving the band Lotus. Uh, 
you know, I'm sure you've had a lot of years of belonging, uh, of sense of um, family with both the band, with the fans. What about your experience caused you to want to kind of step away from that uh, kind of, I guess, familiarity, that sense of camaraderie ship? Um, and how are you yourself cultivating that sense of belonging post that? Hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in some ways, that's a, such a, it's it, a difficult question in some ways. And I feel like when I, when I attempt to explain why I left the project, I'll often say something different. You know, it's like, <laughs> my mind can make up all kinds of stories about why I needed to leave. Um, and I think it was a need. I think it, I felt just intuitively called, um, to experience life in a different way, to experience life outside of a context that had shaped my life for 23 years. I mean, I was 18 when we started the band, 43 now. And um, there was a way that I, that it shaped my sense of who I was and I, I and how I knew myself. And there, I was, there was a genuine curious, curiosity to know, like, wh who is this guy <laughs> outside of that context? Um, so that's one layer. And, you know, I think in truth, I, I might not actually know why I left. It might actually make more sense in some years from now, or maybe at the end of my life, it'll all make sense. <laughs> um, in some ways, I'm just in, in the mystery of it still. I still don't know. And and there are probably a dozen different reasons I can say about why I left. Um, I didn't feel like the most fruitful, like artistic, like collaborative landscape for me. <clears throat> I felt like I wanted to pursue my own voice as a musician. Um, that was one piece. <clears throat> I wanted to serve in a different way or like serve and offer a different kind of service in a more explicit way. Um, I did I did see my relationship to music making as a kind of ser service or a form of service, service being really important to me. Uh, it's a value I hold, but I wanted it like, I felt like I wanted to like land in a context where like, no, this is what I'm doing. I'm being of service to, to the human, to, to humanity, to the earth, to the human condition. And I wanted to be more direct about that. That was another layer. <laughs> and part of it too was like a little bit of disillusionment with the scene we've been talking about. I found myself like perpetually surrounded by like substances like alcohol and cannabis and psychedelics and not wanting to like make any of that wrong. But I'm just those consuming those things weren't a part of my lifestyle yet. I was perpetually surrounded by it and I I just I felt a need to create some space around that and, and create some community um, where the the basic uh, I don't know there is more shared intention I guess and I found myself in different mindfulness communities now in particular unified mindfulness um, I feel like now I'm meandering and I'm like, oh, wait, am I still responding to your question? You just <laughs> so, you yeah. let it perfectly where I was trying to go. <laughs> right, great. 
Yeah. So what was it about unified mindfulness? And I mean, mindfulness in general is such a, I feel like it's kind of a floaty word these days because there's so mm-hmm. many people who are saying it. I mean, there's like a mindfulness magazine. You can get it like your Kroger, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess mm-hmm. for the people who, you know, have heard this term, what exactly is mindfulness? Yeah. So I'm going to talk about mindfulness through the lens of this organization, Unified Mindfulness. Um, it's a place that, or it's an organization I studied with to be a teacher and a coach of the practice. I really got into it more to just deepen my practice. I was, uh, it was something I'd been interested in for, you know, 20 plus years, but I, I wasn't a dedicated practitioner. And I got to a point where I was like, oh, I, I really want to start practicing intentionally, uh, like practicing meditation, sitting on a cushion and cultivating these, you know, mindfulness, uh, attentional skills, we could call them. So um, unified mindfulness uh, defines mindfulness as uh, concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity all working together. So there's these three basic attentional skills there, concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity. All those three, if, if those three are happening, we call that a mindful awareness. And uh, those are trainable skills. And so that's what how I see practice is a, is a cultivation of uh, those basic uh, attentional capacities in awareness. Do you think we could break down each of those? So, I mean, again, like I just, language is such a finicky thing, right? Like there's these words and people all have their own association of them. But I've noticed with, by studying Buddhism, that when we're talking about training um, kind of a perceptual tool like mindfulness, like the definitions are very precise and misunderstanding can create just like a cascade of future misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. So with that, you know, what do we mean exactly by concentration? Yeah, so in UM, they have, it's one of the uh, strengths of unified mindfulness is they love to define things to be clear about what we're talking about. So the way unified mindfulness defines concentration is the ability to focus on what is relevant to us in the moment. Super basic. It's the capacity to focus on what is relevant to you in this moment. Can you do that? (laughs) That's one of those things that, you know, I think, I think it's like a dying art, right? Like just to be able to focus with the amount of distractions that we have Mm. and things tugging on our attention. Mm. Even Mm. that seems like a tall order, let alone the equanimity. (laughs) Totally. I mean, yeah, we live in a, it's a, you could call it a culture of distraction. There's a quote I've heard Sam Harris say often, which I love. (laughs) I've heard He says something like, there's a multi-front war being uh, fought for our attention and most of us are losing it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. So it's worth training that, that skill, that capacity. Yeah. yeah. So there's concentration and sensory clarity. So when we talk about clarity, I think a lot of people who are maybe watching this, who are listening, they're like, yeah, but I hear you. I see you. Like, how is that something that needs to be developed more than what the baseline already is? Hmm. Well, I think that there, there can be, well, um, 
sensory experience is rich and multi-layered. And I think that there can be things that we're aware of on the surface, and there's things that we're not aware of. Um, things There can be things driving us, for example, impulses, um, hidden impulses, you know, aversions, <laughs> cravings. And um, those can often be driving our behavior. And so sensory clarity is this capacity to, to track our sensory experience moment by moment. That's the UM definition, by the way, the ability to track our sensory experience moment by moment. And that includes our inner world, as well as our external experience, what we see, what we feel in the body, what we hear, but also mental uh, chatter, visual images, you know, our thought forms, our emotions. And um, through practice, we can become more and more keenly aware of what's actually happening within us and around us. And by and as that awareness develops, there's a, a kind of inherent satisfaction. It actually feels good to be clearly aware. There's a reward that kind of emerges. And when we can be kind of fine-tuned to what's happening in our senses. Yeah. You know, in, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit before this about, you know, I'm a Buddhist practitioner and that's actually whenever Buddhists talk about joy and the joy of practice, that is actually very similar to what they're referencing in that just by being present, being mindful, there is a sense of kind of completion. You're mm. really connecting to what's called like the suchness of an experience. And that in itself is actually more fuel. There's a momentum to it that inspires you to go deeper. It's not that there's like an outside force that is like, you have to do this or else. It's like, I've tasted a little bit of what that is. And now I see that that is one of the most important things is just being present with life as it's unfolding. And yeah. It's, totally, it's, I love that. It's Such sweet. Nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what about equanimity? What, what How would you best describe that? Because again, it's one of those terms that I think is like, you see it on like, placards in like grandma's kitchens you know it's just like one of those like hallmarky kind of things uh but there is something very real grounded and um attainable with it you know so how mm -hmm. would you how would the um or you describe that yeah i would well i'll give you the um definition is it's basically being with our sensory experience without push or pull it's allowing sensory experience so what without trying to grab on to it, you know, make a pleasant experience last longer than it might naturally. Oh, I'm gonna grab onto this, I wanna hang on to it because it feels good, or pushing away unpleasant. So equanimity is like a this way that we train to to notice those tendencies and it and it's a it's a real it's a practice, <laughs> you know. So I consider it a lifelong, and I imagine I'll be developing equanimity for the for the rest of my life, because um, challenges are going to continue to arise, and um, yeah. So it's in it, to to distill it down. It's just allowing sensory experience um, without that push pull. Yeah, yeah. What I've really appreciated about. Um, you know, my adjacent body of teachings when we talk about equanimity 
it, it really what it opens the door to is to turn the mishaps of our lives into moments of practice rather than opportunities to be defeated you actually get like a bolt of inspiration and a bolt of enthusiasm to like, oh, like this is what I'm practicing for is this moment. Like, can I maintain a sense of clarity about the fact that my chest is getting tighter? My stomach feels nauseous. I have all these like wild thoughts based on whatever is causing us to be stressed. And like that experience is so different than just being caught up and then in the momentum of your reaction Mm-hmm. You know, and like that fundamental twist on the human experience of something that we don't like is so under, uh, I, there's no way to really articulate how profound that is. <laughs> it's true. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. And I think that um, it's not maybe, a, it might not be apparent to, to someone who's just kind of in the, in the, the, the the circumstance of their life almost like it, it's like maybe a norm to be kind of just bouncing off of things and reacting to things like maybe that's what people are used to and the the uh, idea that there there's another possibility um, you know and it may be that a lot of people don't even recognize that but there's a it's a, not only another possibility but it's a radical and powerful and profound possibility of how we can be more and more aware and more and more skillful um and and like you use that word reactivity and you know what mindfulness allows is we often hear a a distinction between reactivity and a response Mm -hmm. it's like we actually get some choice noticing a, a difficult say emotion arising it's like oh it's like you can track that in real time doesn't have to get the best of you where then suddenly you're just like in reaction mode and kind of perpetuating a kind of suffering uh, but you can, you can suddenly be more skillful but it, it takes a lot of practice yeah yeah it really yeah. takes that that quality of sensory clarity i've recognized mm-hmm. and i think for me in my experience i'm i guess i'm three years of practicing pretty much every day and I, I mean, I still experience this most of the time, but just the recognition of how most of my action is reactive. Like as mm-hmm. I'm sitting on the cushion and thoughts come up, I react to the thoughts and then I watch the reaction play out. And it's almost a little uh, uncomfortable at first to really recognize how pre-programmed everything that we think, say, and do really is. Like there's kind of like a gate you have to walk through where you have to really be able to address that. And like, that's really like the dawning of actual like sanity (laughs) and -hmm. like free will, the ability to choose to not just be at the whim of your emotionality. That's really Mm -hmm. what mindfulness represents to me is actual genuine um, action, something new, something fresh, something spontaneous in an otherwise already set up kind of established pattern mm-hmm. yeah yeah totally um you know one of the ways i look at mindfulness practice is just really a, it's like about uprooting habit patterns and that's just another kind of simple way to to look at it um, 
recognizing habit patterns, <laughs> cultivating new ones, <laughs> yeah. more skillful ones. You know, it, the, the new habit being uh, mindful, clear, equanimous attention and allowing for a kind of, um, you could call it inspired spontaneity. Yeah. So in, in the UM system, is there anything regarding, because uh, a big part of Buddhism is loving kindness or Maitri or Metta. These are all names for the same things, but a sense of accommodation. And I mean, maybe this is the equanimity that we're talking about, but you know, as we are sitting down and really recognizing the reactivity of our minds, uh, you know, for me, it really, it took a while for me to not judge that and to not try and manipulate that, but to just allow it. And that took a lot of self-love and like developing mm. that was its own skill. Like a meta practice is its own distinct contemplation. So does UM have a way to kind of prepare you for the wildness of your mind? <laughs> well, I mean, yes. And there's a, so unified mindfulness is a real, there's a lot of um, depth and breadth to the system. What it, you, could cons you could look at it as a categorization system of the, the world's meditative practices. And so it's an attempt to kind of chart and map the all different kinds of ways to practice meditation. So, um, you know, I don't know how granular, I don't think we're going to go super granular with this today, but like, um, there is a, a category of techniques called nurture positive techniques where you're intentionally developing a kind of emotional positive uh, affect emotion you know positive well-being and bringing some attention to that the experience of emotional positivity and cultivating equanimity with that and it, it is a way of like the more you train towards um, um, it, it, you know well-being um, emotional positivity um, the more like the more you practice with that intentionally the idea is that not only can you appreciate it more deeply you'll but you can also notice it more often um, and it seems to be helpful in reference to this like negativity bias that most of us have <laughs> Uh, we're kind of like it's so nat natural or maybe it's conditioned or maybe or maybe both that we're kind of um, we can it's easy for us to be on guard we we want to be accepted we want to be liked we want to do well you know it's these are all natural things and because but because that's so strong in us we can be kind of like tight and we're often looking for like oh how where can i do better and did i do that thing wrong did i say the wrong thing you know that kind of stuff there's like this tendency to get fixated or anxious you know we have a lot of so many of us have anxiety to get like fixated and there's there's so much inertia and habit patterns towards those kind of vigilant ways of being and thinking um so when we practice these nurture positive techniques we're we're like kind of like working those neural circuits and opening them up and making them more accessible to us. Yeah. It's a, a fascinating idea that I think 
a lot of people tend to miss, especially in like a Western culture. Like we all want to be feeling good and feel positive. And we often think that it's a result of the external world, Mm. you know, and this even kind of links back to the first part of our conversation where I also felt um, kind of separated from the festival culture because I feel like that when pursued to its natural end is one in which you need to be in these spaces in order to have the experience of feeling well and connected. You know, so going back to that, what I really appreciate about appreciate about mindfulness is that it it says it's an inside job and that you can mm-hmm. actually work and cultivate a sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. And that to me is one of the most radical things uh, we could undertake as a human being, like taking full responsibility and like it's a practice. It's going to be hard some days, but the more you do it, again, it's the neural circuitry, which has been confirmed by science as well. You know, happiness is a habit. And we know the tools, we've had the tools, and now we're getting even clearer distillations of the tools, you know, through the the UM system as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you've said um, several times you've been speaking. I feel like you're you've pointed to something um, numerous several times so far, and it's this this idea of like through practice. In my words, it would be that there's a there's a kind of basic wellness uh, that's independent of conditions and circumstances um, and that that is that's a big deal it's yeah. so huge it's so in a way it's like outside of the box of what it might be considered normal like it, it seems like we're in this culture where it's like everyone's wanting to succeed and you know you know win the win the game and um actually true well-being the truest kind of well-being that we can discover as human beings it doesn't depend on on conditions and circumstances Um, it's helpful to have you know we need our basic needs to be met yeah and um, there's a way of being in relationship to challenge to physical or emotional pain that while it is painful it doesn't actually cause suffering and and that's an insight that can emerge when we practice yeah how would you distinguish between pain and suffering because i mean from uh somebody who studies buddhism suffering is a i mean it's the first noble truth life has mm. suffering mm. there's an intimate exploration of it that has like lists and there's different kinds but i'm kind of curious about your experience in terms of how would you i guess categorize or understand suffering mm-hmm. well i i resonate with uh shinzen young who's the the unified mindfulness system is based off of shinzen young's teachings um He's kind of the, the guy that mapped it all out. And um, he has this equation. I think it's so beautiful and I really resonate with it. It's this, it says uh, suffering equals pain times resistance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we hear this quote, um, pain is um, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. And so if you consider the fact that, you know, pain is inevitable, you know, we're going to have, we're going to get sick, we're going to 
break a bone, we're gonna have emotional pain and whatever, you know, it's like, we're, we're all gonna experience pain. But the suffering only exists to the degree to which we resist it, is the idea. So, um, yeah, we can, when we do experience pain, it's, it, it's going to be uncomfortable. And by staying curious and interested in the, the event itself and by bringing a kind of spacious, open embrace, a loving embrace, this is kind of part of equanimity, uh, to that experience um, without adding this extra layer of, it's like saying no to it. No, I don't want to feel you shouldn't be here. Ah. It's like there's this kind of extra layer we have, and that's where suffering comes in. And that's kind of how I would talk about it. Yeah, that tracks really well with uh, everything I've learned. I've heard it described as um, fixation is another one, which resistance kind of has a similar stuck kind of quality uh, in the terms of fixation is we oftentimes have a storyline that pain will kind of cut into. It's like, you know, my life is supposed to be going this way. It's supposed to look like this. This is my expectation. And now I have a broken leg. Like, this isn't what I had planned. And it's because we can't let go of the story that we think our life should be. We can't actually embrace the broken leg in mm. its full entirety. We can't concentrate on it because we're too mm. busy getting distracted by stories you know, we can't have that sensory clarity because we're too busy on the stories rather than the different sensations. And we're obviously rejecting it. So equanimity is mm -hmm. out the window too. Yeah. yeah. So for the folks, okay, so I'm sure a lot of people are like, all right, sign me up. This sounds great. I would <laughs> love to not suffer. How do we, how do we do this practice? How do we start? How do we, how does it unfold, I guess? Well, I imagine that just kind of depends on um, who you might be studying with, like what tradition you maybe have found. I would encourage, you know, if, if this is a, new to any listeners, I would just encourage them to follow their curiosity. Um, you know, do a little research and see what what sounds interesting to you. Like, you know, pay attention to your experience as you're doing the research and like, oh, is there a spark somewhere? And is, you know, allured or drawn to some teacher or system or tradition more than another so i imagine there's different um you know ways that people um, begin kind of practicing mindfulness but uh in unified mindfulness when there's like a, a meditation technique called see here feel which is the first uh, technique that's taught generally speaking. And uh, it's like, it's a really powerful technique because it's really adaptable um, to different life circumstances. And you can do it sitting, but you can also do it in motion. And, you know, while you're exercising, it's easy to do in daily life. Um, it's uh, simple in the sense that you can include any uh, sensory experience as an object of focus. So it's not like um, many uh, meditation techniques will, will focus on a narrow, will have a narrow focus range. Um, and that can be really challenging for some people at first. Understandably so, it's still challenging for me, you know, several years into practice. Um, but so see, hear, feel is a 
technique that's where it's like you can actually focus on anything and it's kind of like liberating in that way and it's accessible that you don't have to bring your awareness to a particular narrow field of experience and i could say more about that shall i yeah continue going down this path okay yeah if there's more meat on that bone let's see what's yeah. going on <laughs> so i know we we had talked before we started recording about doing a a guided practice so maybe do we still have time to do that yeah yeah cool yeah um maybe i'll set some additional context and then we could do a little guided practice so we can have a direct experience of the technique and help ground some of the concepts <clears throat> So with see, hear, feel, we pay attention to where our awareness is drawn naturally. Um, when we practice, we just notice where our attention goes. And if we find our attention landing on something like a visual object, we, 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 get, we use that as a moment to note the experience so right now over to my left i'm noticing a salt lamp there's a salt lamp on my desk and if i were practicing this technique called see here feel i would let my attention land on that object and note it and noting in unified mindfulness is this uh, a process of acknowledging a sensory event and focusing on it for a few seconds anywhere between like three and nine-ish seconds. So see the salt lamp, and I have momentary high concentration, staying interested in the, the details of this experience of seeing, and landing there, focusing on it, and I let it go. And then I notice, now, for, now I'm noticing there's some like kind of tightness in my throat. And in the technique, the invitation is to then note that. Oh, this is a feeling sensation. And I'm acknowledging it and I'm focusing on it. And then just to use the last example, in between the times that I'm speaking, I can hear the hiss in my ears, in my headphones. I'm hearing that, it's kind of restful subtle when my attention landed there i keep noticing it so in this technique i'm just going to land there for a few seconds and acknowledge and focus on it so as we're doing this technique um we one of the options is to use labels so let's say we we're going to do a 10-minute practice set a timer for 10 minutes and uh, just allow awareness to do what it's doing you continually just acknowledge and you note and if you want you can use labels labels are very helpful for beginning practitioners to help develop the muscle of concentration and equanimity um, some people when they first learn this technique are kind of they can be resistant to the idea of labeling seems like this 
this thing I need to do. There's like, oh, it's like maybe a little bit of effort, but it's really a light touch. You know, some people might have an association with meditation practice that they're really just showing up to be restful. Um, and that's understandable. And meditation can be restful. And there are lots of practices where you can focus on that if you want to. And I would say um, a technique like see or feel where you're noting and labeling, there's this little bit of effort, but you can do it in a restful way. And um, as a technique, it's very powerful for, for cultivating these basic skills of concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity. I want to check in with you. Is there, are there any questions coming up about anything I've said so far? Mm, no. Yeah, no, you're explaining it pretty well. Cool. Cool. Maybe um, I can't, I don't know if I've, I might have missed some details, but I, I want to maybe take us into a guided practice yeah. and we can find out if I've, I've missed anything and see if there's anything that emerges afterwards. We can yeah. talk about it. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, cool. So I want to invite the listener um, into, if you're in a place where you can sit still and find a posture that's wakeful and upright in the spine, and then relaxing, relaxing down around that central pillar. It's helpful in meditation practice to find this nice balance in the body between wakefulness and ease. Wakefulness, alertness, and rest. And this posture in the body can actually support our access to equanimity. So to start, let's, before we go into the formal technique, let's just take a little tour of our sensory experience. So we can actually start with eyes open. You do not have to practice with eyes closed with this technique. And just notice what you're seeing. You can look around like you might normally look around a space. Just being interested in the experience of seeing. Noticing what you see with your open eyes. In unified mindfulness, they call this see out. As contrasted to see seeing in, which is your inner visual experience. So right now we're just working with the outer. Just noticing what you see. And it's also an option to kind of keep a soft gaze, a, kind of a downward defocused gaze is a way to induce a kind of restful visual experience with open eyes. And then if it feels okay for you, you can close the eyes. This is the next sensory space we're going to be working with is the inner experience of seeing. So there's the, the mental screen. When we close our eyes, we can have a sense of the mental screen. And there may be 
images on the mental screen, or it might be blank. I've come to learn that some people don't have a lot of mental uh, imagery. It's fine if it's more restful. You can just notice the lack of image activity. And if you do, if you are a person who sees mental images, you could kind of get to know this space. You might envision a, like a red apple. You can see that on your mental screen. The image of a mountain or a bird. Or maybe there's not a lot of activity there. So if it's restful, you can notice that. This is the space of C in. Now letting that go. If you want to open your eyes back up, you can, or you can keep them closed. Let's move our attention now to hearing. This would be the hear out space in unified mindfulness. So it's what we're hearing with our eardrums. It might be sounds, might be activity, things happening around us, making sound, or it might be quiet. So we can notice activity or rest with our ears. I'm going to pick up the pace just a little bit here. Now letting go of hearing out. And let's move to hear in. So this is the place where mental chatter happens. Or maybe if you get like a song stuck in your head, this is the space or location where you hear the activity of your mind. You just notice if you can hear your own voice, if there's any kind of mental chatter. You could even think of a song you like. You might notice what it's like to hear that. It's also very interesting to notice when the mind is quiet. It's a kind of auditory rest in the mind. And lastly, let's, let's move to the body now. This is the feel space. We can start with feel out is the UM, Unified Mindfulness Jargon, feel out. And that is anything we feel in the physical body. It could be your breathing sensations, it could be temperature, tingling, Maybe your heartbeat, an itch, anything that you relate to a physical body sensation. Also, for the sake of simplicity, Unified Mindfulness puts the, the senses of smell and taste into the feel category to keep things simple, because there's a 
kind of a somatic component to those. So smell and taste are included in the feel space. And then lastly, let's move to feel in. And feel in in unified mindfulness is any emotional experience, the way that emotions feel in the body. So maybe, maybe there's an, a, an emotion present right now, whether it's uh, joyfulness or maybe anxiety, whatever it might be, just notice how that feels in the body. If you want to experiment, if there's not a, an emotion present, you can just notice that. The lack of emotional activity could be experienced as emotional rest. But if you want to try, if there's nothing present, you could maybe take a moment to evoke something you're grateful for, or someone you're grateful for. Generate a little positivity if that's accessible to you right now. It's okay if it's not. You might play with just thinking of something you're grateful for. A beautiful experience you had in your life. And then just notice any correlating emotional body sensation that accompanies that. Okay, so now I'm going to invite you to let that go. We're going to go into the proper see, hear, feel technique and work broadly with sensory experience. And the invitation here, we'll just probably just be here for a few more minutes, is to note and label your sensory experience. Just notice what happens. Just notice where awareness goes all by itself. And when it lands on something, just acknowledge and focus on that experience. The invitation is to use a label, so I'm going to give an example of what this practice might sound like. Here. See. See. Here. Feel. And that might be what the labeling sounds like. I said here, I was hearing the hissed in my headphones. Then I said see twice, I was seeing the blank restful screen behind my closed eyes. And then I my attention went back to the hiss. I said here, I acknowledge I labeled that as here. And then I felt the sensations in my hands and I labeled that feel. So give that a try. Your labels can be internal, it can just be mental labeling, that's fine. 
you're in a place where you can label out loud, that is welcome. If you notice one more, more than one sensory event at the same time, like seeing and hearing at the same time, you can just pick one. No need to deliberate too much. Just pick one and acknowledge and focus on it with the label. The intention with the labeling is to use an equanimous voice, kind of even keel, that can support your equanimity in relation to whatever you're noting. Just keeping it kind of a gentle tone of voice and going at a pace that works for you. This is your practice. It can be a little faster than the way I demonstrated it or even slower. The point is not to try to capture everything you notice. There will be a lot happening in our sensory experience. Just allow your attention to land. Whatever sensory event draws you, acknowledge and focus on it. Let it go and repeat. And as we stay with this process, we're cultivating concentration by staying with the instructions. As we stay with the instructions, we're cultivating concentration. And as we acknowledge and focus on sensory events, we're cultivating sensory clarity. We cultivate clarity or in terms of detecting sensory events and discerning their qualities to know them, what, what are they like, where are they located, how strong are they, is it moving or changing, staying interested and curious about the details of a sensory event, this cultivates sensory clarity. And lastly, we embark on this whole process, this whole technique, with the intention to be equanimous in relation to whatever arises. We're allowing experience to move freely. And we label with that gentle tone of voice that supports equanimity. So even if there's something really painful in your experience, whether it's physical or emotional pain. The invitation is just to acknowledge that. 
feel. You can just use that label, feel. Allowing it to be there, staying open and gentle, curious, holding experience with care. So this technique is a way to build these basic skills of concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity in relation to the full spectrum of sensory experience. In this way, it's a powerful technique to bring into daily life. So as you're ready, if you want to just notice what it's like to be you right now after having practiced this technique, maybe for the first time. Noticing if there's any pleasantness in your experience, giving yourself permission to notice that and appreciate any qualities of well-being or clarity or rest or equanimity. If those things aren't present, it's totally okay. Doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It's a practice. We are training in these skills. But if there are benefits, it's helpful to give yourself permission to notice them. And as we come out of our practice and continue our conversation, we can potentially maintain some of these skills, sensory clarity and equanimity, as we continue the conversation. So yeah, thank you for practicing with me here, Brett, and listeners as well. Thank you. And if there's any questions that come up for you, Brett, about anything we just did, I'd be down to explore those. Yeah, what's what's here for you? Yeah. I just want to say thank you um, for bringing that practice. Uh, it's definitely different than what I'm used to. Um, I really like the divisions of seeing out, seeing in, and I like how that's all it felt really, um, I guess, supportive in that process of differentiating different mm -hmm. sensory inputs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I think it was, uh, yeah, you did really good. You have a good uh, meditation voice. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say that. That was already very calming. You know, I think uh, something that I struggled with uh, as a practitioner for a few years before I got consistent um, was actually getting to the cushion. Um, mm. For the listeners who are here who just did that practice, who might be feeling any which way, and if they want to continue working with this, but maybe struggle with consistency and discipline, do you have any words of advice for how to create consistency so they can continue mm. showing up and working with this? Yeah, great. <clears throat> Well, before I even respond directly to that question, there is, you said something I want to respond to. I think you, did you use the word disentangle? Can't remember if you use that or if I, that's the word I heard. And there was, there's a way that you said you like the divisions. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. And so I just wanted to highlight that 
in terms of like the exploring the sensory t terrain. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this idea that we can sort of like disentangle um, sensory events within the ses sensory system. And um, there's a kind of freedom that comes with that. And an example here is like, if we have a, if we notice like a difficult emotion, it can sometimes fuel a thought loop. And the thought loop then feeds the emotion. And it's a kind of mm -hmm. vicious cycle. So part of what I want to highlight here in terms of like paying attention to the different sensory spaces, like the emotional body sensations, and the thought forms is like part of what happens in a technique like see, hear, feel is there's this disentangling and we can start to see how the, the visual thought is different from the feeling in the body and, and the one does not actually have to feed the other. And so there's this like, uh, there's this phrase untangle and be free in unified mindfulness it's it's nice so i just wanted to i didn't want to skip over that because it felt pertinent and yeah. um, there can be a lot of uh, richness in the technique and i didn't want to skip over that that particular That's important piece. in um the training that i've had you know we've talked a little bit before my teacher's teachers chogyam trumpa and he had this really brilliant experiential saying that is very similar which is the mind dis untangles itself in space mm. and you know like, like creating it. the space for the the container of the practice you see things very clearly and it's almost like you don't have to do much it naturally mm. upon mm. seeing will start to uncoil mm -hmm. yeah 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 it's beautiful yeah so yeah advice to to get on the cushion or make practice more of a formal commitment. Yeah, that's um, something that I notice with my students uh, whenever I've taught this to class is that it's the biggest uh, hurdle. Yeah, like, yeah, it's common. Yeah, I think that is, you know, one of the biggest ones. And, and if you can um, address that, then you're, you're well on your way, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, I was, one of the first things that comes up, I would say, start small. Um, this is kind of from the, uh, atomic habits school. Uh, I don't know if anyone's read that book. I'd recommend it, but it's, I would say start small. Um, and if you can create a space in your home that, um, you can associate with practice, maybe it's a corner in your bedroom, if you can get a cushion grade, it can, or you can sit on a chair, but there's a designated place that that's where you're going to do the practice that can be helpful um could be like narrowing down to a time of day um like right when you wake up or right after breakfast whatever it may be it can be anything but try to set some consistent time and if you want to only start with like two minutes of practice could be one minute that's a great way to start building the habit and then you can build up to like you know, 10 minutes, whatever makes sense for you, whatever you're available for. Um, there's a few initial tips, yeah. maybe say more. Yeah. So would it be enough for people to just do flashes of this? Or do you think that the creating the container of a formal sitting process would be enough? Or could people mm -hmm. just be walking through life and just like, Ooh, see out or you know, how, what's your totally, I would, I would actually highly recommend 
uh, anytime you think of the technique, if it crosses your mind, bring it in, experiment it. It could be like a background practice, which is a, a concept in unified mindfulness. There's there's um, a variety of um, strategies to bring practice into daily life in unified mindfulness. One of them is called micro hits. So it'd be like a mini mini practice session. Anything under ten minutes is considered a micro hit. Mm-hmm. It could be thirty seconds, but it, the idea is that you're you're fully in. It's like basically a hundred percent of your attention is on the technique. So that's what qualifies it as kind of formal practice. But you're you could only be doing it for thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that you can sprinkle your day throughout that throughout. Or, Sprinkle your day with the practice, and um, it helps to bring in this these the CCNE concentration, clarity, equanimity throughout your day. And as you start to sprinkle your day with these micro hits, um, it, it can it can help maintain momentum of the attentional skills. So I'd say, hell yes, sprinkle it into your day, and then. Doesn't have to be formal practice. It could be like a background practice, like you're walking to the bus stop, whatever. Um, yeah, just staying open and curious, inviting those qualities of equanimity. Um, yeah, it does not need to be limited to formal practice, but uh, I, I do encourage formal practice if if it's accessible. Yeah, yeah, I know from my training, uh, and this is a saying. I think it might. Might have been Chogyam Trumpa, but it might have been uh, Suzuki Roshi. And they're talking about enlightenment, which it was uh, enlightenment comes by as an accident, but meditation makes you accident prone. Accident prone. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, it just helps build the habit, you know, actually committing to a formal practice so that those micro hits become more readily available. And also, like, the idea of just like micro dosing awareness. Like, that's just, uh, that's pretty mm-hmm. sweet. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Maybe I just throw in this word momentum here. Mm. I think that's part of what we do when we do formal training um, or cultivating a kind of momentum of, of these mindfulness skills. And, you know, uh, I don't know if we're going to get to this today, but like retreat practice, for example, is a place where you can get like a, it's like a mega dose of practice and cultivate a ton of like natural momentum of these skills which then when you leave the retreat space there's um and you then you still have your morning practice or whatever evening practice and micro hits and background practice there's a way that you can maintain this kind of momentum of practice where it becomes um um you know it it becomes more and more effortless yeah. The, the availability of concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity becomes more of a trait than a, than a kind of momentary state that you're cultivating. Yeah. I liked this idea, and this was my direct teacher, David Nick Turn. He was talking about how like people don't have problems with discipline. It's just that they're disciplined in like the wrong things. Mm. So we actually have the discipline of mindlessness. So we've built up this strong habit pattern of not paying attention. So in using that, it's like, actually, we know how to be disciplined. We actually have the skill right now, no matter how distractible you are, no matter how much you struggle with that. It's just that you've disciplined yourself to struggle with it. You know, so you can even use that as like a sense of momentum and kind of be more, a little bit more equanimous with whatever state you're in, a little bit more understanding. 
that it's available. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, totally. And I always like to just remind people too of just like to not take take yourself so seriously, not taking ourselves so seriously. It can be a thing where it's just like we want to like we know. <laughs> at least for me, it's like I. I feel like I know that I can improve. I know that I can evolve as a human and it becomes this serious thing and I want to, I want to get it done. And, and it's, but like, I, uh, I have to remind myself, especially in relation to, you know, real, like authentic you know, pain of, of being human that we all navigate. It's like in like the world, what we see in the world, there's just so much suffering and craziness and chaos and, unknown it's, it's it's a wild time to be on on the planet and and it can you know it can feel like so serious at least for me it can feel so serious it's like god i want to i really want to be my best self but then i have to like take a step back and be like okay wait i can i want to i don't want to like lose my innocence here my childlike or my, my beginner's mind staying curious and bringing a quality of playfulness to it gentleness understanding and like really bringing that kind of like that loving kindness to ourselves as we're embarking on a project like this and that it just can really help us along the way with our practice it's like okay i'm doing this and i'm here to enjoy my life at the same yeah. time yeah yeah i really like that and i think that that childlike wonder and that curiosity is the medicine that we need and i think that that is something that is part and parcel with mindfulness because you naturally do once you start to see things clearly like well why is it that way and you kind of do remember that sense of being able to be in the unknown and ask questions and I think right now a lot of the issues in the world are because we think we know too much. <laughs> and, you know, I think people just need to be a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty. They need to be a little mm -hmm. bit more comfortable with just responding with more humor, you know, not taking mm -hmm. everything to be so heavy. And also mm -hmm. saying that all these judgments we have on ourselves, it's beautiful that you bring that up because I think a lot of people, modern spiritual aspirants, really do struggle with that. And seeing that, constant need for self-growth is a form mm. of aggression it's a form <laughs> totally. of self-aggression because it's like totally. i'm not good enough now i'm gonna have to do uh these crazy yogas and like really you know do all this wild stuff so that i can finally be pure enough to love myself mm -hmm. like, or you can just start loving yourself as you are now and then you know give it 20 years it's a long process mm -hmm. and then you'll yeah. start to really recognize the love that was always there mm beautiful yeah yeah really resonating with all of that yeah well uh i'm resonating with this but we are uh at a time right now hmm. uh i can hear my roommates starting to practice their guitar so and i'm well beyond what i told them so i'm gonna <laughs> respect that uh michael thank you so much for your time your energy your practice your mindfulness uh just the work that you've done to get you to where you are right now uh, I really do think it's, uh, it is the medicine that we need. I think people mm. approaching sanity, approaching spaciousness, humor, um, reflection, I think it is exactly what we need. So, uh, feels good to receive all of that. And thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be here. And I, I want you to know I've 
super appreciate the invitation and really enjoyed getting to know your podcast and i look forward to uh staying staying with you and what you're putting out there it's totally right up my alley i love what you're doing really appreciating you thank you thanks so where can people stay plugged in with you because uh you got some offerings you got some stuff you got music that's pretty cool yeah so um my website is michaelremple.com it's r-e-m-p-e-l you can also get there by uh, mikerempel.com and um yeah recently i've, I've been in kind of uh an incub incubatory i don't know if that's a word is that the word i'm looking for i've been in a kind of like a cocoon creative cocoon i haven't been super out like with teaching mindfulness and releasing music yet but i'm i'm kind of like um, exploring my voice as a producer and um, moving towards um, some i think some coaching offerings soon very likely this fall so maybe by the time this podcast gets released maybe I'll, there'll be some some more updates on my website but yeah it's michaelremple.com and i would recommend uh, if somebody wants to stay tuned with either my music or my mindfulness stuff just to sign the mailing list and i will let you know once i'm right on. doing stuff yeah things are happening yeah. cool all right well thank you so much michael i really appreciate it we will catch you next time See you next time. All right, everybody, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through until the end. Again, you know who that was, but in case you forgot, that was Michael Rempel. You can follow him over at michaelrempel.com if you need any commission work. He is your boy. You can also uh, reach out to him if he's open for coaching at this point. It'll say on his website. Uh, he's also got some music on Bandcamp. That's really cool. It's really vibey. So thank you again so much for listening through. Uh, if you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism and consider signing up. You can also leave us an Apple review, subscribe on YouTube, follow on Instagram, like us on Facebook. I'm surprised I can keep all those in order. Either way, you know what to do. It's the digital age. You're not, uh, well, you might have been born not that long ago. I know people are getting younger. I'm getting older. It's, it's a weird world out there. So whatever. Thanks. Bye.